Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duver and I are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290, KZSB.com. We're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village. And Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Happy Monday, Neil, and happy May. How are you doing? Uh, it's, it's not May Day anymore. It's uh, May 2nd, but uh, it is the anniversary of my coming to Santa Barbara. I arrived here exactly 23 years ago today. Wow. Well, I, you know, I, drove, well, I drove across the country with all our stuff in the back of my Explorer, and I arrived here on Monday, which was then May 4th, but that was in 2019, and this is when I arrived. And the may, most significant change was that I've lost my New York accent. <laughs> you know, I was I was thinking that. <laughs> I was listening to you, you say my last name and, and chuckled to myself that I don't think you'll ever lose the, you know, the E-R-A combo. I said it wrong. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> we are thrilled to welcome to the show today, Ian Smith, who's a shareholder at Stradling. And he focuses on mergers and acquisitions, venture capital, and emerging companies and startups. So, Ian, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Diane. Thanks, Neil. Pleasure to be here. And uh, Ian's a perfect guest uh, today because most of the news over the last week has been the acquisition by Musk of Twitter. And uh, three or four of the first articles I have are all about Twitter. And the first one just talks about the financial aspect of the deal. And uh, it's a $46.5 billion deal of which um, 21 billion uh, comes from Musk himself, uh, some of which is a result of selling Tesla shares. Uh, He sold last week $8 billion in Tesla stock. 12.5 billion is coming from a margin loan, uh, which carries an interest rate of 4%. And for those who aren't familiar with margin loans, uh, the collateral is the the stock, in this case, Tesla stock. And to the extent that Tesla stock would have declined, which it has been, the uh, lender, the borrower, in this case, Musk would have to put up uh, more collateral uh, if in fact uh, the stock continues to decline. And the remaining 13 billion is in the form of a loan from a group of seven banks charging somewhere between five to, to 10%. And uh, interestingly, the loans are being put on the books of Twitter. Twitter is responsible for paying those loans, uh, which is interesting because Twitter doesn't make any money. Um, and uh, it's really rare for a company not earning anything to have that much that much debt. Uh, the uh, uh, revenue base of Twitter is mostly advertising. Uh, they have uh, several billion dollars worth of advertising revenue. And one of the first things that Musk said, he is considering getting rid of advertising, uh, which again, adds to some of the suspense. You've got a company that now is uh, not making money, has almost all of its revenues from advertising, has huge debt that needs to be serviced. And the owner, the new owner, is thinking about eliminating uh, the one source of revenue that they have. The the next article talks about another element of this puzzle is the fact that uh, one of the biggest buyers of Tesla cars and in a sense, a partner of Musk is China. And China does not like Twitter. And so one of the developments that are 
making people, you know, shake their heads is how is Musk going to handle uh, that uh, conflict? Uh, does he fold to China? And, you know, he's the one that's saying free speech is an imperative that's absolute. And in which case, does that mean that China can't be uh, protected from free speech, anti-Chinese uh, rhetoric, which uh, has been on Twitter, but to the extent that China puts pressure on Musk, is he going to acquiesce to that pressure? Um, and finally, the, the last article I'm going to talk about, actually the last two articles I'm going to talk about, about uh, Musk and Twitter, is that currently uh, Twitter is selling at 6.4 times forward uh forward revenue, whereas Meta or Facebook is selling at 3.4 times. So Twitter is selling at twice what Facebook is selling for. Uh, and uh, obviously, Facebook still makes money. And the last article about Twitter, which I think is, in a sense, one of the more interesting articles, is uh, by James Stewart of the New York Times. And he's not talking about numbers here. He's talking about the fact that when the board met, the Twitter board met to decide on this acquisition, the only thing they considered was price. And that brings up an interesting question. And we've talked about this before in the context of company responsibility for stakeholders other than shareholders. And most corporations today follow the you know University of Chicago uh, 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 concept from the 1970s that the only thing that a uh, uh, board and uh, an offices of a corporation should do is maximize shareholder profit. And here's, you know, if this is in fact the town square, and this is in fact something that this is a company that really matters to society, then uh, maybe the board should have considered who was buying it, not simply the best price. So you know, those what, are I think, the what I think is really fascinating about this is how everyone's in a you know, a frenzy about Elon Musk buying this. It's a crazy risky proposition for him. His, his risk, you know, analysis must be, you know, pedal to the metal because to buy another company on margin is crazy in and of itself, right? However, when you look at what everyone's speculating on what Musk is going to be and what's he gonna do and is he gonna let China on? Is he gonna let Trump back on? You know, the reality is, is no one knows However, the way Musk runs companies, if you look at how he put together Tesla, is he's very little in the weeds. He is a visionary, and then he turns it over to people who know what they're doing. So I, I think there's a lot of concern about him buying Twitter, rightfully so. However, I think we'll all be surprised at how little he actually is involved in the day to day. Now, could I be wrong? Absolutely. What's interesting is he didn't do any due diligence. I can imagine spending $46 billion on a company without due diligence. On uh, margin. On margin. It's just, you know, it's just crazy. Um, the next article is one that <clears throat> we've talked about many times, but things seem to be getting worth, worse for Kathy Woods. You know, Kathy Woods is the uh, 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 head of ARC. Uh, ARC Innovation Exchange Traded Fund, which is essentially uh, a group of... Uh, of 10 companies, including Tesla, that um, uh, she believes is the future of the, of the world. And uh, it was down 21% uh, uh, last year. Uh, it's down 45% so far this year. And in April alone, it was down 21%. And what's so interesting about this is that uh, her uh, net sales are still up. People are still, so this article talks about interviews they've had with people buying it and they're saying, well, it's just a buying opportunity. Uh, you know, if you're down 50 or 60% in a market that's down 10%, usually it's pretty much curtains for at least inflows. And here people, it's like a religion. People believe in those stocks and are willing to go ahead and buy into her fund, even though her fund's performance has been uh, atrocious to to, to, to put it kindly. Yes, it is. It's very much a cult following. I've actually overheard um, acquaintances and friends talking about it. And it is very much like they think she's, you know, this isn't the time to sell because she does such a great job. So it will be interesting. Only time will tell on that one. So this last article, I should have uh, uh, read two weeks ago because it's two weeks old because it, it was 
prescient to what's going on, it, it, it talks about the fact that buybacks are increasing. And that may signal a stock market top, which, which in fact it did. Uh, again, this article is two or three weeks old. And, and what it was uh, focused on was that historically, uh, company boards are very bad at timing. They typically, and when they've done studies, which the article goes into, they always buy their stock at too high a price. And so uh, we saw in this article, be uh, right before the market collapsed, a increase in uh, buybacks in the S and P. It was one trillion dollars. Uh, and again, uh, if you base this on historical precedent. Um, if they're buying, it could be a good time to sell, which is sort of counterintuitive, but that's what the history tells us. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Ian Smith, who's a shareholder at Stradling, with us today. And he uh, focuses his practice on mergers and acquisitions, venture capital, and really um, representing companies running the gamut from small startups to Fortune 500 companies. So Ian, thank you so much for sharing your afternoon with us. Oh, happy to Diane, pleasure to be here. So let's talk a little bit about how you got involved in law. And um, you know, I, I think you have an interesting story because you aren't the typical political science major in college, but rather an art student. So tell us Ian, how you went from graduating art design school to uh, then graduating law school? Sure. Um, well, you know, actually I started out as the typical political science major in college, uh, but I just didn't last. Um, <clears throat> started out at a UC doing poli-sci and it was interesting, but uh, I felt a sort of more creative calling um, that uh, drew me down to a school in Pasadena called Art Center College of Design, where they have um, <clears throat> a automotive design program that, uh, pretty much turns out most of the automotive designers in the world. There's a couple other schools that, that add to those 
those ranks, but Art Center really does turn out most of the designers who you know design and build the cars that everyone drives. And so, Clay, are you a, are you a Musk photos. plant now, Ian? What's that? <laughs> are you an Elon Musk Tesla plant on our radio show? <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, I, I could talk about the I could talk about the Tesla design ethic. Um, there's elements of it that I like, and there's elements of it that look unfinished. Um, but uh, that's sort of not the money talks part of the Tesla story, I think. Um, but <clears throat> it turns out, after an arduous uh, four plus years of design school. Uh, I came to the conclusion that I really like cars, but I don't really like drawing cars. And visual communication um, <clears throat> is a real uphill challenge for me. Uh, I do better with spoken or written word. Um, and the ability to actually get down what's on your head onto a piece of paper is a real talent and a real skill. And there's some inherent talent there, I think, and there's some learned skill. And I was diligent, but um, <clears throat> ultimately, it's just an enormous challenge. And what's in my head doesn't always make it onto what's on the paper. And when it comes to the practice of law and brokering deals, um, I find that to be a more satisfying exercise for me personally. So, so what is your principal practice? What do you, well, first I should say, what do you enjoy the most in your practice? Is it that small startup company or is that, or is it a large company and, and what, what parts of your practice do you find, you know, derive the most joy from? Sure. Well, I went to law school with the intent of being a deal lawyer. And a deal lawyer, I think, is different than most lawyers or the lawyers you see on TV. I mean, nobody makes TV shows about M&A lawyers and deal lawyers because the drama isn't there and the conflict isn't there. If I do my job right, both sides of a deal go away happy because there's been an exchange of disparate value and both sides have found something that they valued more than the other side. So, you know, it's the proverbial win-win deal when you do a voluntary deal. Um, and so making deals and the, you know, creativity that goes into structuring and documenting a deal, um, you know, it sounds a little corny, but there actually is creativity there. Um, finding ways to get people to agreement uh, in ways that each side values um, is really satisfying. And watching entrepreneurs start their company, fund their company, grow their company, and either take it public or exit it through a sale uh, is a pretty gratifying thing to be able to help with. I mean, I'm and sure you probably feel the same thing when you watch you know, somebody's um, assets that you're managing um, grow and you watch them plan and then you watch them sort of navigate the, the pitfalls of something. I mean, deal making is a lot like that. And what's interesting about your philosophy is that one of the criticisms of some M&A lawyers is that rather than trying to get an agreement, sometimes they come into a deal where uh, both parties are happy and they try to break the deal up, although they don't realize it, they're not doing it on purpose, but they start to nickel and dime things that nobody cares about. And it ends up sometimes being uh, destructive. Well, if I could only work with lawyers who were former car designers, I'd be happier. But there are those lawyers, I think, who just can't help themselves, right? And they do have to like get down to every last comma and every last period. Um, you know, ideally, you would want lawyers who listen to their clients and understand their goals. I mean, again, like a financial planner, understanding your client's goals is, is key to actually achieving them. And as a deal lawyer, you need to know what's important to your client. Um, and if, you know, <clears throat> if they don't want to get into the weeds on the representations and warranties about, you know, obscure intellectual property elements, then listen to your client and, you know, don't necessarily take the deal there. Um, you had mentioned in your um, summary of the articles, uh, the lack of diligence uh, in, the, in the Musk uh, Twitter deal. And that's not all that uncommon in public deals because, you know, a lot of the material information about a company like Twitter that is public is publicly available through the SEC filings. And so when you've got a deal of you know, 40 plus billion dollars, um, everything that's material should already be out there. And so the level of diligence that gets done in public deals is frequently lower than the level of diligence that gets done in private deals. Because in a private deal, you know, you've got to dig through the file cabinets because it's not out there on the SEC website. And so, how long have you been practicing law in Santa Barbara? Straddling's a, f a very large company. 
And I feel like about 15 years ago, you opened up a Stradling office in Santa Barbara. Does that sound about right? Stradling opened in Santa Barbara, who I would say longer than 15 years ago. When they first opened, they were the competition. I was not with Stradling. Um, but uh, I am with Stradling now, and it is a good fit for my practice. Um, it's very entrepreneurial. It's got a focus on business owners and the people who found businesses. And it is a nice size. It's regional, but it's not um, baselessly global the way some law firms have grown to become in the last you know, five, 10 years. So I've been, I've been doing this work uh, in Santa Barbara for about 22 years. Uh, I started in the tech boom of the late 90s and, uh, and saw the frothiness of that, um, you know, some of which, uh, some of what we're seeing today is a little reminiscent of that. Um, you know, went through the housing run-up to you know, 2006, seven, watched that. We're seeing some of that again. Um, it's just interesting to see some of the cycles sort of repeating but you know, not in complete congruity with one another. And so have you found that you've had enough um, business come out of Santa Barbara with our um, robust technology sector? You know, um, many people coin Santa Barbara as kind of the baby Silicon Valley as a lot of our um, entrepreneurs and engineers have come out of UCSB. Has that been where most of the deal flow has come from for um, your practice, or is it more of a, a national um, flow of business? Well, that's also an evolution over time. Um, I think my practice, and I think most, most corporate transactional practices over the last 20 years have become less location dependent. Um, you know, we think of Santa Barbara as a mini Silicon Valley, but there's a ton of mini Silicon Valleys out there across the country and across the globe. And anywhere you've got a university that's um, you know, putting out <clears throat> real development and real science, and real innovation, you're gonna have a potential ecosystem for people starting companies. Um, what comes out of UCSB is uh, you know, astounding, the, the level of science uh, in photonics and in other things where you know, real, real innovation is being made. Uh, and the UC system is willing to license that out to its, to its inventors uh, to go off and start companies and grow them. So Santa Barbara for its size, um, you know, has an outsized presence because of UCSB. Um, but if you look down to Los Angeles in the last 10 years, the, the venture community and the innovation community have just blossomed there. You look at Austin, it's happening there. So anywhere there's education, um, there's people starting companies. That's a, that's a great point. And um, we do sometimes in Santa Barbara get a little full of ourselves with, oh, we're the baby medicine in Silicon Valley for sure. So now given um, the size of our community and the amount of startups, do you find that most of, your, most of the time you're representing startup companies or would you say you, you do have a quite a bit of mature um, businesses? You know, it's best to have both. Uh, not every startup goes, not every startup pays your bills, um, but you want to have a nice um, <clears throat> flow of, of new startups that are maturing over time and going through a cycle that eventually goes to either a public exit or a sale exit, or, or you know, in some cases just becomes an operating company that, uh, that generates you know, significant revenue and stays private. Um, those do occur in Santa Barbara, they kind of operate under the, under the radar but you see, you see things like Yardy Systems, um, private, generating significant money, Green Hills as well, doing the same. Um, <clears throat> so you want a nice funnel of startups coming in uh, and you want to help them mature. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. 
It was a goal that I wanted to achieve from the very beginning. I'm a 40-year-old man that walked in there to get his high school diploma. I wasn't sure if I could do it. It was very hard for me, but the teachers, the counselors, they help you. One of the teachers was Miss Araceli. Miss Araceli, she gave me direction. Every single time I had a question, she'll put down whatever she's doing and she'll come over and she'll sit there with you until you get it. At age 47, with the help of his teacher, Marco finished his high school diploma. 50% of getting your high school diploma is walking through those doors. The other 50% is doing the work. Getting your high school diploma, it is a life-changing experience. It really is. It catapults you to where you want to go. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. This is the place that talks about Santa Barbara. Mike in the morning. Community Matters. Radio Real Estate. The Sports Lounge with Big Lou. Money Talk. The Andy Caldwell Show. Teen Sports Radio. Golf Radio, Radio Show. Community Alert. Mortgage Matters. Welcome to the Voices. 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 Voices of Santa Barbara. The CEO Report. When CSUCI presents About Education. The Farm to Table Hour. Around the World. The Jeremiah Show. The Art and Antiques Radio Show. Garden Gossip. Cork and Fork Radio Show. Tell me your story. KZSB. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. If you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Ian Smith, who's a partner at Stradling with us, talking about... What he, what he does for our community. And so, you know, before the break, Ian, we were talking about startups. And so when you work for startups, you know, I, I think the comment was they, all, they, they don't always work out, so they don't always pay the bills. My understanding of startups is most of the time they're, they're getting their professional help and trying to pay you in equity. Is, would that be accurate? Do you, is that, do you accept that as payment or is it cash only? You know, people talk about that a lot, but equity is not cash. Uh, equity comes with a lot of strings that cash doesn't. Um, a lot of my startup clients, when they're trying to conserve cash, they're looking to pay people in equity. And it just comes with so many complications um, because it is, it is regulated. Um, the government looks at ec- equity issuances and there are exemptions from registration and the rest of the securities laws. And so my advice to them as to as to their legal counsel, their accountants, everybody else is pay with cash if you can do it. Um, find a way to do it. Pay with equity. You know, various service providers sometimes will take a little piece if it's offered um, as sort of a we're all in the same boat sort of nominal idea of equity. Um, but equity is just not a good substitute for paying your bills in cash. And so many service providers that focus on the startup community will you know, offer some sort of deferral, discounted rates, um, some sort of package to give people some runway uh, to get up uh, on their legs and find some financing. Um, You know, those are usually limited. We are, you know, in business to make money. Um, And so those sorts of deferrals and other accommodations, you know, are finite and have an end point. Um, But as part of the startup ecosystem, I think it's pretty generally accepted. That's fair. Well, because, you know, equity doesn't pay your mortgage, right? Uh, Not for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So now in terms of the, you really service the life cycle of a business here, you know, from startup all the way up. Now, once you have a privately held company that's mature and creating cash flow, what types of issues are you normally helping them with? Well, you know, unfortunately... (laughs) Companies have all sorts of legal issues, uh, particularly as they scale and grow. Um, you know, employment is probably one of the ones that comes up the most as the company scales. Um, traditional, traditional industry companies typically have high numbers of employees. You get into you know software as a service, and companies can scale their revenue sometimes with fewer and fewer employees. But 
it's really just sort of a numbers game. The more employees you have, the more people in your venture, the more likely you are to have conflicts around, you know, something with some of those people. Um, and that can be true on the investor side as well. So, you know, we help people with equity compensation, stock options. We help people with their employment arrangements um, and, you know, keeping congruent with California law and the law of other jurisdictions as well, because increasingly even a small startup will have people in other states and sometimes in other countries as well, um, even when they're just, you know, a handful of people working out of an office in Santa Barbara. And so the international compliance we help with, uh, we help with the continued registration and protection of intellectual property. Um, you know, if and when there are business disputes, we have litigators who will go into court and fight that stuff out as well. Um, we try not to let them out too often, but you know, when they're necessary, they're necessary. And then there's just the day-to-day, -day, um, <clears throat> you know, contract work of commercial contracts. And sometimes you have clients who are buying other small businesses and combining them. So, you know, there's any number of ways in which we are there to help with the legal services that a growing company needs. Now, how often are you finding that you're working with corporate counsel of the of said company versus that company using you more as a corporate counsel? Well, so you know that's I think a, a classic growth question for most companies is, you know, you start off with three, four founders, you know, around the proverbial kitchen table, and you grow from there. And at what point do you rely on consultants? And what, what point do you bring in, uh, you know, a dedicated full-time employee? And that applies to finance and a CFO, uh, accounting and a controller, uh, HR and the you know, head of HR, and it applies to general counsel. We typically serve as, as, you know, outside GC for most of our clients until they have the scale that justifies a full-time, you know, <clears throat> legal counsel or a full-time general counsel. Um, so, you know, mature companies definitely do, you know, at some point require in-house counsel. And so we try to work with them and frequently we, you know, end up with our associates or sometimes our partners heading off to be inside counsel at some of our clients. And that's a great relationship for us, uh, because we're already working with somebody who we have worked with previously. And so, you know, tell us about, um, you've worked on a blank check merger. Tell us about what that is and what risks there are to investors with it. Well, okay, so that's a, a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, the, the structure has been around for years. Um, they were referred to recently as SPACs. Uh, in, in the past, they were blank check companies where um, <clears throat> a group of entrepreneurial individuals would uh, go through the public filing process with the SEC and form a company, sell shares and raise a pot of money um, that has a undesignated use. Um, the company is structured such that they make the offering, raise the money and they give themselves somewhere between 12 and 24 months to identify a candidate to go out and purchase um, with those funds, which then sort of backs itself into becoming a publicly traded company. So, it's an interesting structure, um, but it is an alternative to a traditional IPO. And because of the time the public filings are made, the company has no operations history and no business, the filings themselves are simpler and cheaper and faster to do because you're simply just raising a pot of money basically. And so <clears throat> as an alternative path into the public markets, uh, it's historically tended to be used by companies that were not getting the attention they wanted from the traditional gatekeepers of the IPO market. And so that disparity um, <clears throat> over the years <laughs> had a certain shadow to it in the companies that went public through a blank check company or, or shell merger, we typically looked on as maybe not companies that could have gone public through a traditional uh, underwritten investment banker IPO path. And so in the last year or two, there was a big blossoming of SPACs and we saw lots of celebrity led SPACs um, coming to the forefront and people looking to create value by taking their notoriety, raising money, and then taking it and putting it into an operating company. And that, that arc was sort of a bell curve. I mean, they, they came onto the market very quickly. They blossomed. They were um, very, very popular in the news, I would say about 12 months ago, and then they started tapering off. 
Um, and there's, you know, one lingering right now out there um, <clears throat> around uh, an alternative to Twitter's media platform. But for the most part, you know, the SPAC world has cooled down a little bit. And I think people's um, fascination with it has, has worn off a little bit. But, you know, it seems that the from an outsider's standpoint that the attraction of a SPAC is you don't have to file an S1, I guess. You, you are able to uh, avoid the scrutiny that a typical uh, uh, exchange uh, public uh, or a public uh, uh, joining the public fray would be uh, would be eliminated, and therefore you kind of sneak it under the wire. I mean, that's sort of the suspicion, right? Um, and that and that has caused people to look at SPAC public companies with um, you know a bit of a discount, I think, historically. Um, you know, from the company perspective, you know, usually the company that goes public through a SPAC or um, a similar structure is, is looking for the financing and, and looking to be public um, and making a deal with the SPAC sponsor group is typically looked on as easier and faster than going through an underwritten uh, S1 process and going through the full regulatory regime of the SEC. So. Um, you know, it's interesting. At the end of the day, I think a lot of SPAC companies found the process to be uh, more complicated than they expected it and to yield lower proceeds than they were hoping at the start. Um, the particulars of the SPAC offering allow the SPAC investors to redeem their shares before the deal closes. And so if a given SPAC raises $250 million, um, when the vote to do the merger of the operating company and the SPAC comes up, the SPAC investors have the ability to redeem their shares and pull their money back out if they don't like the deal. And as the SPAC fervor sort of cooled, um, I think we're finding more and more SPACs were essentially being defunded by the time of closing. And so those that had a following, a follow-on offering that was underwritten like a more traditional IPO would do fine because they had investment banker support, but those that did not have a follow-on offering, found themselves public, but without the resources they were hoping to yield. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. The Santa Barbara County Fire Safe Council has a free event coming up March 6th, 7th, and 8th. It's their Wildfire Preparedness Exposition. Here's Paula Lopez. We are presenting a three-day event. It's called the 2022 Wildfire Preparedness Exposition. It'll be taking place Friday, May 6th, 7th, and 8th at Direct Relief in Goleta. It'll be educational and informational. We really want to stress the importance of bringing the whole family because kids need to be involved in this planning process. We're all in this together. There is no area that's really completely fire safe. But what we can do is be educated, be informed, and as our slogan says, be empowered. And that's the goal of this three-day event. It's just the beginning of what we want to accomplish here in Santa Barbara County. To learn more about the free wildfire preparedness exposition taking place the weekend of May 6th, go to sbfiresafecouncil.org. That's sbfiresafecouncil.org. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who, who got, got his first, first job, job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, 
free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. And if you're just joining us, we have Ian Smith, a partner at Stradling, who is primary business is mergers and acquisitions, startups, and really all things deals or transaction-based. So before the break, we were talking about SPACs, which have been in the news a bunch. And so Ian, you have been working, you've worked on SPACs. What do you think as, if not the attorney or the corporation's point of view, but rather as investors looking to invest in SPACs after they go public, are, do you see that, 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 yes, people look down upon SPACs because they feel like they weren't able to go through the due diligence of a traditional um, underwriting process? However, do you see that the company suffers in the end if the investors don't pull out? Uh, multifaceted question, Diane. <laughs> um, you know, I think every company's a little bit different. I think, unfortunately, going through this back process, companies frequently end up on the public markets without analyst coverage and without the support um, of bankers to be there. And so I think that can be a sort of um, <clears throat> disconcerting position for company management to find themselves suddenly public uh, and without the usual support structure that a, that a traditional IPO company would have to rely upon. And so, um, you know, there's certainly opportunities investing in SPAC companies, um, but it is not for the faint of heart, I would say. Um, and you wouldn't want to uh, overweight that in a portfolio, or at least I wouldn't, um, in, in search of uh, outsized gains. Um, I think the SPAC, the post-public stock price of a lot of SPAC companies can be pretty volatile um, because usually they're pretty thinly traded when they first come out. And so, um, you know, that's opportunity for some people, but it's also, you know, heartache for others. So. so transitioning back to this, the Musk deal, um, based on the numbers that, you know, we talked about in the opening of how much uh, uh, Musk has in terms of cash margin and loans, how would you advise uh, Elon Musk, you know, in terms of paying just the debt service? <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, because if you think about it, most of the time you buy a company that has revenue. And so you're assuming that it will pay for its own debt service. But if he does go away with, you know, advertising and Twitter doesn't have any other revenue streams, you know, what would you advise him? Well, that's a great question. I mean, first, I'd want to know what he wants to do with it. I mean, what are his goals? Um, he's, I think, stated that it's not about making money, right? Um, and if we take him at his word, uh, you know, um, he's got more assets than most, to put it mildly, <laughs> or more assets than all, uh, if you believe what you read. And so, <clears throat> you know, this is an unusual deal. It's not a traditional private equity deal. Um, it's got elements of it because it does have some company debt that's funding part of the purchase. Um, but, you know, all signs so far don't point to him taking this company, writing its course in his view, growing it and then refloating it to the public, right? I don't, and yeah, I don't think he's spoken about that being his goal. Um, and so, you know, how he makes it work, that's up to him. Um, you know, he's, he's got nobody to be responsible to the way the current board does uh, in terms of their fiduciary duty to shareholders. If he's the sole shareholder, he's got lenders to pay and how he does it or where it comes from, uh, doesn't necessarily have to come from Twitter. So um, he's got, I think, options. Uh, he certainly, in terms of Tesla, uh, has defied many people's expectations in his ability to grow that and ramp up production um, in the face of incredible odds. So, you know, the chance that he surprises everybody, despite being what we would consider to be, you know, severely over leveraged, I think, you know, I think it'll be interesting to watch. But, you know, you, everyone talks about what he did for Tesla, but there was an article on Friday that had a graph of the capital value of the top 10 auto companies in the world. Yep. And next to it, it had Tesla. And Tesla's cap value is more than all of the 10 major auto companies in the world put together. So a good deal of the value that the market puts on Tesla is, is without precedent. And so it's not that he created a company that makes so much money that we can say, 
it's a safe bet where in a sense, if you're the lender, if you're Morgan Stanley, you're saying that the market uh, multiple is going to be, be maintained at a level that no other auto company comes near to. And that in itself is a risk. Absolutely. I mean, is it an auto company or not? I guess that's, that's the question. Um, and I would certainly agree with you that uh, those valuation numbers are sort of frothy. Um, it's a tech company valuation. It reminds me of the late 90s, right? Um, looking at things on potential revenue three years down the line to justify valuation um, doesn't always work out unless it's Google, you know, or <laughs> Facebook or something. So, um, so like here's here- a... In your experience, how why would these banks actually do these loans to him? Do you think he's personally guaranteeing them? Um, you know, I've not seen the documentation behind it. I don't know that that's actually been publicly filed yet, the, the commitment letters and the like. Um, but just reading sort of the anecdotal um, reports of how much of various pieces are coming from what buckets, um, you know, the margin piece they typically don't value the stock at full value when they give you the margin loan. And so there's you know, a lot of equity to value there um, <clears throat> to cover uh, a decline in Tesla stock. Um, he's got you know, other things besides Tesla, right? Maybe a space company, <laughs> uh, maybe some other things. So you know, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna loan money to anybody to do it, the supposed richest guy in the world seems like the guy to, to, to loan that money to. You know, there was a legal case a few years ago about, I think it was during the financial crisis, where uh, there was lawsuits against banks for, um, it's like giving your child too much chocolate for dessert. Sure. They, they were saying the banks were at fault because they shouldn't have lent money. I wonder if at some point someone's going to, uh, if this goes south, is going to blame Morgan Stanley for, you know, giving uh, Musk too much chocolate. Uh, anyway, you're, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back with our final segment. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the kellymarshteam.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. National Nurses Week is celebrated in May, honoring a distinguished profession. In the U.S., there were some 12,000 registered nurses by 1900. Today, that figure exceeds 3 million. Nurses' responsibilities have grown with their numbers, keeping up with increasingly complex medical technology. They're found not only in the nation's 6,900 hospitals, but also in more than 90,000 other caring facilities. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So in talking about this, um, this purchase that Elon Musk is making of Twitter, 
you know, where does law intersect with really, you know, the public square being owned privately? And how do you see that playing out legally? Well, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting question, Diane. Um, you know, Twitter has grown to become uh, looked at as a, as a public square uh, where people can voice opinions uh, or factual content or, you know, uh, in the past, whatever they wanted to voice, um, regardless of any consequences. Um, <clears throat> the Consumer, uh, the Communication Decency Act that came into play in the 90s, um, Section 230 in particular, carved out provider liability for what's published on a platform. So where something like a newspaper might have some responsibility for what's on the platform, um, Twitter doesn't. And that's allowed it to you know, have all these different voices and all this different competing information, in many cases, you know, bad information or fake news or whatever you want to call it, um, without really having any liability for what's on its platform. Um, and so as a, as a town square, yeah, it, it, it serves that function. Um, the idea that it's a public town square that will now be owned by uh, one of its more prolific users um, and somebody who, if you look at the, at the effects of tweeting on you know, Tesla's um, narrative, has, has found out ways to use uh, Twitter, uh, I would say to the benefit of, of Tesla over the years. You know, it's a really interesting challenge to have a public town square that's privately owned. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and whether there's you know, mass migration away from Twitter to an alternative platform um, or whether it sort of stays the same and um, you know, muddles along as a privately owned public town square. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of thick skin he has when it comes to criticism from users uh, about him. You know, he's saying everyone should be able to say whatever they want, but what if there are people ganging up on him? Is he going to permit that? He, he right now currently blocks people uh, from uh, hearing, seeing his tweets. It'd be interesting to see if he's, if he's going to be willing to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in particular, the, uh, the young man who, uh, who founded the, the jet tracking uh, part of, of Twitter, um, right. I believe he has is, he is now um, rolled that out to other platforms uh, just in case he, uh, he does get blocked on Twitter post-acquisition. Um, so yeah, and, and then, it, then is it really a town square or is it going to be a censored Elon Musk domain, right? And that's the question I think that we're, we're all grappling with and only time will really tell. Yeah, I think the real concept of a town square is a public space, not a private space. And if Twitter is privately owned, it is, you know, in my view, not a town square um, because it always has the risk of being uh, taken in a different direction by its owner. Well, thank you so much, Ian, uh, for uh, being here and explaining to us what the world's going to look like in the next few years. Um, and it's a, you're luck, we're lucky to have a firm like yours and you in this, in this community. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.